Welcome to Webinacki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Webinacki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webinacki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we will be discussing Native American slavery in New England. I'd like to introduce my special guest, Professor Margaret Ellen Newell, Associate Professor of History at Ohio State University. She's written a book titled Brethren by Nature, and welcome, Professor Newell. Thank you, Donna. I'm very happy to be here with you today. Okay. Uh, but before we get into a deep conversation, <laughs> I kind of okay. like want to uh, tell the listening audience a little bit, uh, very, a little bit about you. Uh, and what I want to do is just read a bit from, I, I do... I do research on the internet every once in a while. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is just a short, a brief uh, sketch. And it's uh, Margaret Ellen Newell received her AB in history and Spanish from Brown University and her MA and PhD in early American history from the University of Virginia. Her research and teaching interests include colonial and revolutionary America, Native American history, economic history, material culture, and comparative colonial American, Latin American history. And uh, she's just published a book. She's published a number of, of books and articles. But we're going to focus on her most recent uh, book titled Brethren by Nature. Um, so before I actually ask uh, Margaret to, to talk with us here, um, I want to talk a little bit. I just want to say something about her book. Um, I first came across the book in Indian Country Today. It had a number of articles um, on the book. And what I want to do, just so that the audience can get a, a flavor of the book itself and what we're going to be talking about here, um, if it's okay with you, Margaret, I want to I read the inside flap of the book. Sure, that's fine. Okay. It's called Brethren by Nature, and it's by Margaret Ellen Newell. Uh, in Brethren by Nature, Margaret Ellen reveals a little-known aspect of American history. English colonists in New England enslaved thousands of Indians. Massachusetts became the first English colony to legalize slavery in 1641, and the colonists' desire for slaves shaped the major New England Indian Wars including the Pequot War of 1637, King Philip's War of 1675-76, to 76, and the Northeast Wabanaki Conflicts of 1676 and 1749. When the wartime conquest of Indians ceased, New Englanders turned to the courts to get control of their labor or imported Indians from Florida and the Carolinas or simply claimed free Indians as slaves. Dur uh, drawing on letters, diaries, newspapers, and court records, Newell recovers the slaves' own stories and shows how they influenced New England society in crucial ways. Indians lived in English homes, raised English children, and manned colonial armies, farms, and fleets, exposing their captors to Native religion, foods, and technology. Some achieved freedom and power in this new colonial culture, but others experienced violence, surveillance, and family separations. Newell also explains how slavery linked the fate of Africans and Indians. The trade in Indian captives connected New England to Caribbean and Atlantic slave economies. Indians labored on sugar plantations in Jamaica, tended fields in the Azores, and rode English naval galleys in Tangier. Indian slaves outnumbered Africans within New England before 1700, but the balance soon shifted. Fearful of growing African population, uh, local governments stripped Indian and African servants and slaves of legal rights and personal freedoms. Nevertheless, because Indians remained a significant part of the slave population, the New England colonies did not adopt all of the rigid racial laws typical of slave societies in Virginia and Barbados. Newell finds that second and third generation Indian slaves fought their enslavement and claimed citizenship in cases that had implications for all enslaved peoples 
in 18th century America. So, Margaret, a fantastic book. I have to hand it to you. Thank you. Um, and, uh, and welcome to our show. Um, well, I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, I, I'm curious, though. How, how did you um, decide to speak about or to write about this particular subject? Well, my first book was about the origins of capitalism in colonial America and how capitalism helped cause the American Revolution. And while I was researching that book, I was looking at the papers of a, a Boston merchant named John Hall. And I was really more interested in what he was importing and exporting. Um, but it turned out he was the treasurer of Massachusetts Bay Colony during King Philip's War. And he had the account books of the colony in his papers. And, that, and I found page after page of evidence that Massachusetts Colony Right, the official government had sold hundreds of Indians into slavery at the end of King Philip's War, during and after King Philip's War. And I hadn't known anything about this. I teach American history, you know, colonial and revolutionary. I teach the early American survey. I've taught, literally taught uh, over 10,000 students at Ohio State. And I was shocked that this wasn't in the textbooks. It wasn't part of the story that I told as a, as a teacher, and that really um, roused my interest and curiosity and made me feel that someone had to look into this history <laughs> and that someone ended up being me. So I had to go back and learn more about Native American history, which is a field and has lots of people with more expertise than I have, um, but I tried to learn from them and read as much as I could about that history and started uh, a, a research project that took me quite a long time to complete. Um, so so yeah, it was probably, a, probably trying to correct the record that seemed to me to be very incorrect. So the textbooks all said that the English colonists didn't enslave Indians, that the, you know, the Indians didn't make good slaves, uh, that it was too easy for them to run away, etc. I think the, you know, the story of African slavery in many ways kind of swamps the story of Indian slavery for many people. Uh, many people in North America, even though uh, we know that in both North America and South America that Indian labor and the enslavement of Indians was the major source of um, labor for Europeans through the early 1700s. Um, yeah, and I was noticing that um, in, in these articles, there's like two, at least two articles from Indian Country Today, mm -hmm. <clears throat> and in one of them, they say that it, you researched this for, let me see, um, was it this book, for like 15 years? Pretty close to that. Now, wow. I, have to, I have to confess that, you know, I did other projects along the way and had other, other, other uh, things I was working on, but it did take me quite a long time, especially because I, I looked at a lot of... Uh, local court records, which meant going into county courthouses or working in the Massachusetts archives um, to look at look for individual cases in which Indians were sentenced to servitude by the local courts. So, now that you found records, what was the earliest uh, that you found records on slavery? In well, there's. I mean, there's evidence of uh, English explorers enslaving or, or taking captive um, Inuits in the, uh, as, they were, as they were sort of trying to find a Northwest Passage. So that's, that goes back to the 1540s and 50s. And the very earliest um, uh, English explorations in contacts with um, the Northeast, you know, what is now Maine, Cape Cod, many of these uh, um, voyages took captives as well. They would just take people, partly as proof they had been to the Americas, partly because they wanted interpreters um, and to get information for return voyages. So they would take these people, um, hope they would acquire English or some other European language, and then, and then have them come back to lead the future expeditions and colonial projects. But sometimes they sold these early captives into European slave markets. Um, so there, there are Indians from New England who are being sold into Spain, into Spanish slave markets um, as early as the 1610s and the 1620s. Yeah, so, but, yeah. uh, there's, there's criticism of that at the time, though. It's something that's, that's going to, uh, John Smith and others say this is going to turn the Indians against um, future 
English colonial efforts. So there's there's some effort to stop that behavior at that time. Right, but there was uh, slavery happening already um, in in uh, in Europe and in England, right? Well, when, when they were, before they arrived here. Well, the thing about England, the thing that makes to me that made also the story interesting was that. Um, Whereas it was that England was was one of the few countries in Europe that where where there really wasn't slavery before colonization, where they had a um, there were where they were they had slavery in in the sense of you know feudal relationships or serfdom had disappeared centuries earlier. Um, the countries that were the countries in the Mediterranean, Spain, Portugal. Uh, Places with contact with the Middle East and North Africa, you know, had had more contact with slavery even before the explosion of the African slave trade, and they were countries ruled and influenced by Roman law. And the Romans had slavery and had a lot of slavery. England was different. Um, so to me, you know, this, so this is a, this is a situation where they were not applying European norms, but rather they themselves created a slave system from the ground up. They had to, they they create the laws and make the laws and made the decisions. So you're, talk, you're saying, people. I mean, you're saying that the Puritans did that? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Really? So there's no English guidebook for them. They were they were making this law from scratch themselves um, and creating a slave system in in ways that was not being directed by England. So in England, did they have like indentured servitude or? They did have servitude, and indentured servitude had become. Um, the sort of law of servitude had had become um, a, a big, bigger and bigger part of the labor scene in England in the 1500s and into the 1600s. So there, they did have that legal tradition to draw on. But I argue that the way the Indian war captives were treated was very different from the way that European indentured servants were treated. So, so you know, that's so indentured servitude existed. Europeans were held in. Um, servitude for you know periods of five to seven years by these contracts, but they were legal contracts. They had an endpoint. There was some effort to you know make sure that the master had obligations as well as the person engaged in servitude uh, having obligations. So, um, so uh, uh, whereas with the Native Americans, they generally were serving without contracts in this early period. Um, there was no, there was no set term. There were no limits to these terms, um, and there were no obligations on the master's part in terms of food, treatment, etc. involved in these contracts. So yeah, so the English had had um, some experience with bound labor and they treatment, etc. involved in these contracts. So yeah, so the English had had um, some experience with bound labor and they. Uh, um, could use that institution a little bit as a framework for slavery. But I would argue that the way they treated the Indians differed even from that framework. And slavery, and you, you know, you said they were like in Af- the African and Middle Eastern countries, and um, but and, and slaves were used for what reason? Why did people, why did they feel they needed slaves? Well, you know, there was a, there was a global trade in slaves, um, that stretched back to the you know eighth and ninth century when Europeans um, were first really coming into contact with Africa and the Middle East for trade. Um, sometimes they took people and sold them to these African countries as slaves. So there was demand within Africa um, and in other parts of the Middle East for slaves. The people used slaves as household workers for childcare, um, for farm work, for helping with the all of the tasks that households had to engage in. Um, it, took, it took a lot of labor to run households. Households were like little manufacturing centers for people in the early modern world. You think about, um, say, in a typical New England household, if somebody had to grind corn or wheat into, um, into meal um, or flour that could be made into mush or cooked into bread, somebody had to spend maybe three or four hours a day doing that. Just to feed feed that household, um, children had to be taken care of. Yeah, but and uh, it also yeah. I mean, uh, and I would think that it would also help with uh, uh, cultivating land and absolutely uh, and uh, taking care of livestock, um, hunting. Um, you know, you know, people still you know, the colonists themselves relied a lot on 
Native Americans for food of all kinds. Um, and just, you know, hunting game was, was a, a real service to, um, was an important, you know, form of um, sustenance, um, gathering shellfish, um, doing the things that Indians did for themselves um, were things that the Europeans also were interested in um, taking advantage, kinds of labor that they were interested in taking advantage. Later, um, uh, slaves were important parts of the maritime industries. So they were sailors. Um, you know, they manned ships. They were fishermen. They were whalers. Uh, they were soldiers. Um, so, so both female and male labor uh, was very important to to various facets of the economy. So, this and these these you know the, this recognition of these important roles stretched back into these earlier periods. Yeah. But for the English, you know, most of these tasks have been fulfilled in England by uh, families and then by servants. So, you know, somebody like John Winthrop, the governor of Massachusetts, in his English manor before he migrated to uh, New England, you know, he had 12 to 14 servants in his household. So these people were very accustomed to having large numbers of laborers, large numbers of servants to work, um, you know, to work in the field, take care of the various enterprises they used to make money and feed their families, but also to, to engage in all these household tasks, um, the, um, home tasks. And that's where why female labor was also an important part of this equation. So, you know, so you also have a situation in a colonial environment where labor is short and labor is much more valuable than it is in Europe at the same time. Yeah, so well, I imagine, <clears throat> I imagine when, uh, when the uh, colonists got here and they were trying to expand, uh, they really needed some help, uh, you know, expand, expanding their property and, and working their land. And Well, sure, and a lot of these folks, you know, um, most, if you look at the major leaders, the ministers, um, the magistrates, the members of the um, Massachusetts Bay Company, and the governments that emerged from these early colonial um, ventures, you know, one of the things they did in government service was give each other land. <laughs> that was one of the advantages of being in government service. This, right. I mean, this but, is Indian land. Yeah, right? but, so they, right. they but don't, don't, don't you land. think that land was the basic foundation or what we call today the bottom line of things you had to have sure. land first well that's the big that's the big yeah. resource right that's the big transfer of wealth that went on from indians to europeans but the thing was in you know without labor land has limited value so labor was the key to making that land um you know create value for europeans so you need you know you needed they needed labor and the fact was that um labor was extremely expensive in the colonial environment so people imported European slave, uh, excuse me, European servants in that first generation of migrants. So when those servants' contracts um, expired, many of them chose not to renew them. They and they chose not to be wage workers. They wanted to become independent planters in their own right and acquire their own land and start their own households. So really, around the time of the Pequot War, there's a particular crisis of labor for Europeans in New England. The first first group of servants, uh, their contracts are up, and they don't want to renew. It's it's becoming difficult to get more servants from England, um, and the price of labor in New England was higher than any, pretty much anywhere in the world at that time, in the 1630s. So this is the sort of thing that made Native Americans look attractive as a potential labor source. You you use a, a phrase in your in your book that I kind of find intriguing. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's called uh, it's judicial enslavement, right? Well, that's uh, you know one of the things I found is that most of the Indians who were enslaved in the 1600s were enslaved during warfare, but in the 1800s, the uh, excuse me, in the 1700s, uh, many of the Indians of New England, of Southern New England, had actually become part of colonial society, and that the colonies asserted jurisdiction over them because of conquest, because of the English victory in King Philip's War. So the Indians of southern New England essentially became subjects of these of England and by extension of these colonial governments. And, you know, society can't enslave its own citizens unless they you know, under English law only kind of only under even under the laws of the colonies themselves have passed um, 
you know, you had to, it, there had to be some sort of pretty extreme criminal activity to be subject to a sentence of slavery. So with warfare no longer an option as a way to acquire servants via captivity, I argue that uh, uh, New England society turned to the courts as a source of captive labor. So what, what I find really after King Philip's War, especially starting in the 1690s, is a huge jump in the number of Indians who, who are being sentenced by, by colonial courts to servitude for mostly nonviolent crimes, um, theft, uh, trespassing, um, drunkenness, sometimes assault, um, or sometimes just debt. Uh, sometimes, you know, families families are getting to, into debt because they're bringing doctors in to take care of people in times of illness, or they're, you know, borrowing uh, money or food to get through a rough patch, or they're actually uh, unscrupulous creditors are getting, intentionally getting Indians into debt so they can bring these cases and try to get control of their labor that way. So that as many as two-thirds of Indians who are appearing before these colonial courts between 1690 and 1750 in places like Plymouth County in Massachusetts or Bristol County or New London County in Connecticut, parts of Rhode Island, these counties that I studied, you know, anywhere from half to two-thirds of the Indians who are appearing before um, judges or juries are getting sentenced to servitude. Now, you say in your book that uh, the slavery was a good, one of the uh, the main reasons that started uh, uh, King Philip's war. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's I think it played into both King Philip's war and the Pequot war. So I think I think both those wars had a lot of complicated causes. I think that you know, land European desire for Indian territory, competition amongst different. European groups was often a factor, as it was particularly in the Pequot War, competition between um, Massachusetts and Plymouth and Connecticut, competition between the English and the Dutch, um, uh, desire to control trade, including Indian trade. These were all factors um, in the Pequot War, and certainly uh, territorial disputes, violent encounters, the efforts of the English to extend jurisdiction over Indians and um, the penalties that they tried to impose on the Wampanoag and Narragansett, those all were, were part of the controversies um, that, that led to war. But I argue that um, taking captives uh, soon became the main goal of the English colonies once war had begun. And you see this very vividly in the Pequot War, you know, after... after um, you know, a couple of months into the conflict, that particularly Massachusetts forces are, are were focusing a lot more on taking captives than they were on engaging the Pequots in battle. This is noted by other commentators, both English and Native American, sort of see this. And in the context of uh, of King Philip's War, uh, slavery and Indian Indian slavery and forced labor is, is one of the things that Philip Metacomet mentions as a grievance leading up to the war. And it, and it again like. Like the Pequot War, the English forces were, were taking slaves, you know, all during the war. And in fact, their the aggressive slaving drove some neutral groups or some groups who were trying to avoid conflict and were not interested in necessarily taking part of the war in the war. Sort drove them into alliance with Philip, uh, be, you know, because of the aggressive activities of. Um, of the slave traders, essentially, that were part of the military forces of Massachusetts, Plymouth, and Connecticut, Rhode Island. So they're 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 basically, you know, that's one of the reasons why I think the Narragansetts joined the Wampanoags in King Philip's War was because of aggressive slaving on the part of the English. Um, so uh, so that so that slavery is both a cause and an outcome of these conflicts. Yeah, and you uh, you do write. Uh, something in your book here, and um, it, it, it's something like it, it says, uh, in the 1600s, more than 200 years before Indian children were forcibly removed from their communities to attend government boarding schools, Indians in New England were also encouraged to bind their children in service to English families, and oftentimes were forced to do so in order to pay debts and fines. Mm-hmm. 
and, and you say that that legacy uh, moved forward into the uh, 20th century as well. Sure. Well, Ella Sekatel, the Narragansett historian, told me that in her childhood, she in the 1930s, it was very common for the local sheriffs to drive around and uh, visit families that the children were not working for for local white families to tell them they better they better get out there and start or he was going to arrest them so that the local law enforcement put pressure on people to work for European families or white families. Um, in the colonial period, in the context of King Philip's War, um, many Indian children were forcibly indentured. So these are, some of these children were not orphans. They were children whose families uh, were sweat parents. Um, this practice of um, so-called pauper indentures, of putting poor children or children whose families were a judge not to be capable of providing for them. Um, the, the people who were in danger of becoming um, folks who were going to depend on public welfare or, or be, be a surcharge on the town of taking children away from their parents and binding them to um, other families. Now, this, this, these were laws that applied to people of all races. They didn't single out Indians, but they, over time they came to be applied more to Indian and African-American families than to white families. So they they became, you know, what what happened with all these laws in New England in the 1700s is they they started out in a way of race blind. White people could get sentenced to servitude for crimes as well. But they just essentially stopped applying, um, enforcing the law or or stopped sentencing um, people of European descent to servitude and kept sentencing Indians and started sentencing them more. So there's a kind of racialization of all of these, of the way these laws are applied over time that's very noticeable in the records. So, yeah, I mean, you think about the impact it had for these Indian children to be raised in these white households, separated from their families. And families made heroic efforts to stay in touch with their kids. They visited them. They removed them and made, made arrangements to take them um, home for funerals and for important religious ceremonies. So whenever they could, parents really did everything they tr- they could to try to stay in touch with children. They tried to protect them during all these legal arrangements. If they saw abuses, they tried to intervene. But in some cases, parents were not able or they weren't close enough, You know, didn't have the means, um, and their distance was too great for them to maintain that contact. And then those children were in a very difficult position. They were vulnerable to being enslaved being sold as slaves. Yeah, when you mention that. Just, just basically without legal justification. Right, uh, and when you, when, you, when you say that about being sold as slaves, they, they also had slave auctions in, in Boston. and. Yeah, sure, almost all these towns had, uh, they called them the public van dues, or vendues. So you know, the auction blocks that were right in the town square, um, right by Faneuil Hall, you know, right Egertown and Martha's Vineyard, um, you know, you name it. You think about the town, the, the town center would have a public public market, and they would have public auctions of Indians who had been sentenced to servitude. So the colonies did the same thing with, with uh, these captives. They, they just divided them. In, in Plymouth and Massachusetts, they auctioned off the King Philip's War captives to the highest bidders. Um, in Connecticut and Rhode Island... Uh, they distributed them to the towns and let the towns just sort of distribute them to individuals or they sold them and gave everybody in, in town a share of the profit of those sales. So, you know, entire communities were were kind of embedded in Indian slavery as a result, either as owners or as beneficiaries of these sales. Yeah, well, you know, did the majority of the, of the male uh, Pequots that were captive, were they executed? Well, they in the Pequot War, they definitely was a preference for killing killing the men. You know, they're trying to pre- the, the the goal is to prevent the Pequots from reassembling as a as a force, as a uh, you know, as a group of power. Mm-hmm. Um, but but some men were still captured. Um, some men were still taken into captivity. Um, so we have we have records and evidence of them um, working for elite families um, in New England. Some of them actually managed to gain their freedom. Some of them were released at the end of set terms like servants. So in some ways there's, there's, there's a lack of clarity all through the period and who's a servant and who's a slave and how that is going to be determined. Um, so in the, with that first generation of Pequot captives, some of them were freed after 
five or seven years. So, so the people on them were following the custom of, of indentured servitude that they were familiar with. But in 1641, Massachusetts passed a statute that actually defined slavery. So they, you know, they're doing this before Virginia, before Barbados, right. before any of these other societies yeah. we associate with slavery. Yeah. And that, uh, I think that statute also could have empowered people who tell these captives to think about, you know, think about categorizing them as slaves in, in, a, in a world, in a, in a colonial world where they were seeing a move towards slavery elsewhere. Right, so the slavery is a slow, a slow developing institution. It's 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 what it what it is. Who could be enslaved? Whether slavery is a status you inherit from your parents? All these things are unclear in law and practice. So there's there's lots of differences and um, and, and and confusion on the, on the part of um, European societies about what they what they can do and what. Um, what they're able to do, right? With, and they t- and they tried people. to codify that, and, and right. So and, the codification, you know, really takes almost a century, right? So, and, and, so, so New England's part of that process. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're and, early and, and you, don't you mention the uh, Massachusetts Body of Liberties? Is that the law? Right. That's the that's the law. The laws and liberties, and the body of liberties. So there's mm-hmm. a 1641 version and a revision in 1646. But those were the first laws to codify slavery uh, in this country? Is that what you In this country and anywhere in the English colonies. So even before the Caribbean, these societies that would soon become, you know, the ultimate slave societies, Massachusetts was first before them, and it's because of these Indian captives. So some people did keep their Pequot captives for life. We do know that as well, uh, male and female, so that they're, or, or, or they might sell them to Barbados or to Virginia or someplace out of the region, after which, you know, what, whatever custom might apply in Massachusetts was not going to apply necessarily in Barbados. So, so captives had different experiences depending on who, who claimed them. Yeah. Well, um, and, and some then, of them were certainly claimed as, as lifelong slaves. Right, I mean, but didn't they also not want to keep uh, a lot of the Indians here they wanted to just get them out of the country because well, you know i actually i actually think they i actually argue that they kept most of them in new england that i think, I think they didn't trade them for uh, the no i mean they did they did trade some so they you know the some of the Pequots um were exchanged for african slaves in providence island which is a puritan colony off the coast of venezuela so the first slaves were imported import, imported into massachusetts were actually exchanged for indians so Indians exchanged for Africans. That initiated the slave trade of Africans into Massachusetts. Um, and there were certainly Indians exported into other places all through the period. Um, but the majority were actually used to labor in New England because of, the, because of the labor demand was so great there. So that's, I think, the part that we forget. I think there's, there's some people, I think we kind of, some people kind of knew about the exported Indians. But that was part of the narrative that, you know, the Indians... The New England Indians weren't really enslaved in New England. Well, they were. So I'd say the vast majority were actually slaves and you know, kept in New England and working in English households or in English enterprises all through the period. Yeah, and wasn't there some sort of outrageous number of... Uh, was it the Pequots that were enslaved? It was a... Well, certain, I, I, you know, I a think... A third of them? Or numbers are hard. You know, yeah. I think about... about uh, I had about 320 Pequot captives I'm able to track, but that actually represented about a third of the of the available labor pool in New England at that time. You think you think about the small scale of these early colonies. That was a lot of people for them. That was a huge asset commodity for them. In at, at after King Philip's War, probably over a third of the surviving Indians in southern New England were enslaved. Yeah. Well. And about of them, about about four hundred of those were exported, and the rest, about fifteen hundred, sixteen hundred, were actually kept in New England, and either sold or, or distributed all through all through southern New England. Yeah, and and the other thing is that um, in one of these articles, uh, Indian Country Today article, mm-hmm. there's I'm not sure if it was from your book or just from the article, but it said something about. Uh, a Wampanoag elder called... Oh, Tall Oak Lee? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's a very interesting guy. Yeah, and what he said is, is, is inter- you know, he said slavery had a major impact on our people here. Mm-hmm. 
most people, Indian and non-Indian, don't understand that we were carried on the first slave ship in America, the so-called Cradle of Liberty built here in Marblehead, Massachusetts, so, which was part of um, Salem. Uh, what do you think about that statement that he, he said? Well, he's talking about that voyage um, to, to Providence Island. So the, it, and the, that voyage not only initiated the slave trade, it also initiated New England's trade with the Caribbean. So, that, so you know, they'd been desperately trying to figure out a, a basis for their economy, a way to pay for the things they wanted to import from England. Um, and, you know, the, this trade with the Caribbean turned out to be the, the um, keystone of the New England economy for most of the colonial period. So the Pequot captives were part of that first cargo that a... Captain named William Pierce took with the, with you know it was a cargo put together by the Massachusetts government in a certain way and they were desperately hoping his voyage would be successful. He was he was their agent and he had Pequot captains as part of that cargo and that he this initiated the trade with the Caribbean that become a kind of savior of the economy and you know other you know I, I'm not saying that that Indians didn't get exported they certainly did. So after King Philip's War, I've been able to track some uh, Indian captives from New England. Some of them ended up as galley slaves. They were rowing English naval galleys in the Mediterranean, based in Tangier, being fed bread and water, chained to the oars, and rowing these galleys. Hmm. Others were um, sold to the Azores Islands, um, which was a, another trading partner of the New England colonies. Um, a lot of wine was produced. This is close to Madeira and uh, the Canary Islands, and they were big wine producers. So they're trying to get into the importation of wine, and also needed food during King Philip's War because the war was so destructive to Indian cornfields and also to English uh, farming. So trips to buy food from the Azores turned out to be also opportunities to sell Indian captives. So Indian captives from King Philip's War ended up there. I think some might have ended up as far as the Indian Ocean, sold in slave markets in Madagascar and on the other side of the world. Others ended up in Jamaica, um, Barbados, uh, Bermuda, and elsewhere in the Caribbean, you know, working on sugar plantations, the most brutal you know, and you know, difficult circumstances that um, enslaved people experience in the Caribbean. So, you know, so it was a, and for these people, you know, really it meant permanent separation from their families and their kin. So, to, you know, a really terrible fate. Hmm. So uh, tell me about uh, the Wabanaki now. There's, I don't believe the Wabanaki had the same history. No, they have a different history. Now some, so the Wabanaki were, were uh, maintained neutrality through much of King Philip's War. Um, they they tried to protect refugees um, from the so Wampanoag, Narragansett, Nipmuc, um, you know, lots of Indians from southern New England just tried to flee the region. You know, this is another effect of slavery and enslavement is that it, it really um, it created these massive movements of people and refugees. And if you think about what we're seeing in Europe now, um, people were just fleeing these war zones, and also because Plymouth enslaved and exported Indians right off the bat, right at the beginning of the war. Uh, already in, in the war began really effectively in July, June and July of 1675, and Plymouth was already auctioning Indians and exporting them as early as August of 1675. So, the, the, you know, this was just creating a lot of concern and panic amongst uh, Indian civilians, noncombatants. Women and children are just, are just you know, moving, fleeing, trying to get away from the war zone. So some of these folks moved, you know, moved northwards and tried to move towards relatives um, amongst the Penacook or the Penobscot or uh, Abenaki and other groups that were part of the Abenaki Confederation. Um, but um, the English uh, captains and lieutenants, were um, particular, there's a couple particular individuals who are very. In, engaged in, in enslaving Indians, taking Indians captive. One of them was a man named Samuel Mosley. Uh, really pursued these refugees and, you know, try, were making lots of efforts to enslave them. And because of that, they sometimes 
engaged in violent attacks on Wabanaki villages to try to get at these refugees who they saw as, you know, fair game. And this started creating lots of friction with the Wabanaki um, towards the end of King Philip's War. And sometimes individual sachems would send emissaries to meet with and negotiate with the English, and people would kidnap these emissaries and try to enslave them, you know. And, and uh, there was a couple, there were a couple of tremendous incidents where um, English officials kidnapped um, Wabanaki uh, right at the end of King Philip's War, shipped a bunch of them to the Azores Islands. And Massachusetts actually was so worried this was going to pull the Wabanaki into warfare that they sent an agent to get these Indians back. He had to go back to the slave markets and buy some of these Wabanaki. And it did manage to to find some of them and restore them. Um, one of them was a sachem named Clagamore and his wife. Um, but uh, another English commander then turned around and, and kidnapped possibly as many as 150 Wabanaki and also tried to export them into um, the Atlantic and the Caribbean. So the Wabanaki ended up entering into armed conflict against the New England colonies. And, you know, the New England colonies thought this would be business as usual, and they would try to take captives as they had in all these other wars. And they, you know, when they recruited soldiers, they said, hey, I'll, you know, you, you get paid for every Indian life you take, and you also get paid if you bring in captives. So they use it as a way of man, a way commodity of or payment, yeah, pay, paying the troops, a recruiting tool. Yeah. But as it turned out, um, the Wabanaki were more than capable of also taking English people captive and devastating English villages and English settlements. And this created a, a lot of, you know, this this created a lot of concern and a calls for changing the policy of enslavement, both from the governors of individual English colonies, but also from the imperial authorities, the English, who were involved in these wars as well. Because from the from the British perspective, New England was was mismanaging its Indian affairs. It was, you know, it was driving the Wabanaki into the arms of the French. It was costing money. It was costing lives. Um, and they started putting pressure on the New England colonists to stop enslaving Indians. The English were also you know, thinking that the Indians of southern New England should be treated better because they were a potential source of soldiers. They made up important segments of the armies that the New England colonies were deploying against the Wabanaki and against the French and against the French-allied Indians from Kahnawaga and these other settlements. So, you know, they're like, you can't, the British are telling the colonial officials, like, you can't can stop treating the Indians so badly. You know, they, they really started questioning the whole thing, the, the judicial enslavement and um, the, the various kinds of mistreatment, as well as enslavement of Wabanaki captives. Saying, but both of these things are creating, you're, gonna, you're shooting yourself in your own foot. So, uh, you know, these pressures, the pressure that the Wabanaki put on the English through taking captives and British pressure and self-preservation, in the end, forced the English colonists to recognize Native American citizenship, or, or certainly recognize that they were simply couldn't. Were the Indians weren't enslavable, either the Indians of Southern New England or the Wabanaki or other Indians they were going to fight against. They had to treat the Indians they were fighting against the way they would treat, you know, French or other kinds of European soldiers as soldiers, as people you could take prisoner but you couldn't enslave. But all during this time, they also were worried about recognizing uh, Native sovereignty. It's true. And, you know, because the sovereignty came, you know, who, who controlled the land. So the, right. this is all part of the British trying to also claim that Indians are their subjects. Um, but for some, and the Wabanaki weren't interested in that deal either. So the Wabanaki are never recognized, don't, did not recognize British sovereignty. At different times, other Native American groups sort of looked at the situation and thought, that they might be better off making a deal with the British than they were with, with the colonists themselves. They actually saw the British imperial f- officials as being less interested in territory and taking land than the colonists who were their near neighbors. That they, you know, that they could become um, enter into relationship with the English crown that would put them on the same level as the colonies. And they could push back against the claims of individual colonial governments or individual colonists against land. 
Yes, I mean, a subtext to all the stuff that's happening is also is lands and is Indian resources that were being taken by the um, by colonial governments through both legal and illegal means because the the expropriation of all these resources and land are, are also sort of forcing Indians to start working for English colonists um, and wage work. And that was often a risk factor for being seized as a servant um, because it, it, people often try to claim the labor, force into servitude or trick into servitude people they already knew, people they knew were good workers and could do the kinds of work that English needed. Or you have people hiring Indians as sailors and then selling them as slaves during the voyage. You know, there are Indians who are getting sold as slaves in the Caribbean who just happen to be, you know, are serving on ships like everybody else with contracts and all of a sudden they're being sold away as slaves. So, um, you know, so these economic circumstances are putting Indians into a lot of contact with English in a lot of work situations, and that's also put them at risk of being illegally enslaved. And it also created conflicts between Indians and English over, there's disputes over who owned a piece of land, and English would accuse the Indians of trespassing. And that meant dragging them into court, and that meant maybe that they would be sold into servitude. So back, yes, so back then, I mean, the, the court system or the legal system uh, basically was there to keep the Indians under control and uh, make sure that the land stayed within the power of the colonists, right? Yeah, I mean, it's complicated. Sometimes the courts wanted to recognize Indian land rights because they wanted to buy the land from the Indians. You know what I'm saying? They're, they're, you know, sometimes they buttress I some see. Indian claims yeah. because it, it, then, then it, if Indians sold the land, then that meant but, they but the, but the courts, But the courts were never uh, there to protect the Indians. They were no. there to... <laughs> No, there were very few times when they, when they, you know, there are very few occasions where the courts try to intervene and, and offer protection to individual Indians. And sometimes they would put Indians on juries or, you know, make some kind of nod towards, um, towards Indian rights. But in general, no, the, the courts were very hostile to, in my, in my view, were, um, were hostile towards Indian interests. But the, but the thing was that the English couldn't really impose their will on the Indians through much of the 1600s, but by the late 1600s, they were increasingly able to. So that's part of the story, too. And the English could, you know, could make all the claims they wanted, but, you know, until after King Philip's War, they didn't have the power to assert jurisdiction. So, but they do after, after the 1680s, they do. And then that's why you see all these Indians in court, because at that point, the English can actually you know, arrest them and compel them to show up in court and do things that they couldn't do before. Yeah, and, and I guess this probably would have been uh, still happening today if they didn't realize that they needed the help of the Indians to, to against uh, other powers. Well, it shows that, the, you know, they enslaved who they could, but, you know, there were some groups that they simply couldn't enslave because, of, and it was a power, you know, it's who, who had the power and the kind of military force and the, you know, allies to push back against enslavement. So the Wabanaki are an example of that. But, you know, they still, they had to endure decades and decades of warfare still to kind of assert that. Um, there are other people that I did find that managed to push back against slavery as individuals, though, and that's also kind of an interesting part of the story. So, you know, we did say, you said very, you know, very correctly that the courts were not the friends of the Indians. But I do find some examples of Indians who actually, you know, f- try to fight their enslavement and manage to manage to win court cases despite all these odds against them. Yeah, I do. You do cite a couple of those uh, instances in your mm-hmm. in your book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do find it interesting, though, um, where uh, you say that the uh, Indian slavery was erased from the annals of history as African slavery became more common and Indian slaves and servants were classified as black or mulatto. Mm-hmm. You say even the New England abolitionist movement, which had recognized Indian slaves and servants in its advocacy efforts during the 18th century, focused almost entirely on the issue of African-American emancipation and civil rights by the 19th century. Now, what do you suppose drove that change? 
Well, I think part of it is that um, New Englanders... Yeah, I mean, people in New England were very aware of this history in the antebellum period. So there's, there's all these very famous female authors who are writing books that are huge bestsellers in America in the 1800s. Um, Catherine Mariah Sedgwick and uh, uh, Lydia uh, Mariah Child. So they're writing huge, huge bestsellers. And they often, they had often Native American characters in them. Nathaniel Hawthorne did. Um, they have Native American servants and slaves in their books that are major characters. So that it was a known fact feature of, of the near past for people in that period. And that's a time when people were also writing and publishing accounts of King Philip's War. And, were, and, they're very, and they are very blunt about slavery and enslavement. And they even call their ancestors slavers and talk about their slaving. Hmm. But, but I think the Civil War wiped a lot of that memory out. I think that New Englanders, you know, the Civil War turned slavery into a southern sin. Northerners felt that they kind of somehow absolved themselves and that they weren't part of that history anymore because of their anti-slavery activity in the 1850s and their participation in the Civil War. And so somehow, you know, the South became demonized as the one place that had slavery. And this whole history of Northern slavery that stretched through the colonial period well into the 1800s. You know, Connecticut didn't abolish slavery until the 1840s. There, wow. and, you know, Massachusetts never abolished it by statute, or, or not until well into the 1800s. Huh. Um, so they're very, very slow, in fact, to do something to end slavery by statute in the North. Um, very complicit in slavery in lots of ways, and both in, as involvement in the slave trade, benefiting from trade with slave societies elsewhere by providing them with provisions. So, the, 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 you know, that part of the history got, got sort of wiped out by the in, in memory and in self-image by the Civil War. And I think it's also partly the sort of people who wrote about American colonial history in the 20th century, a lot of them focused on New England. And the story was really about, you know, the Puritans. It was about religion. It was about the moral and political foundations of American democracy and the best of American society. That was all, you know, in their minds, that was all located in the North. And Native American relations was simply not part of that story. Slavery and, and it time still is isn't. not part of that story. <laughs> well, you're absolutely right. I mean, yeah. it's just, I mean, I'd say it's just starting to become part of that story. And, and really, and mostly because Native Americans and African Americans have pushed to make it part of that story. Um, I think it's still, you know, in terms of public monuments or the Freedom Walk, you know, the, the Freedom Walk or, you know, uh, the, the places that are preserved and turned into museums, the tourist attractions, they, they are, there are very few that, acknowledge that history and they're just many of them are just starting to do so now hmm. so and I, I think there's a larger question that um, Native scholars like um, Gene O'Brien and others have talked about of, of just the general desire to forget the Native American past in America and but in New England in particular um, that, that really you know began in the 19th century of wiping out that Native American past we use all the place names all the rivers you know I mean, yeah, I mean, the history is so intertwined with, you know, Native history that it's exactly. really... Well, you yeah. know, if I, when I look at these records, I, I mean, three-quarters of what these governments did in the colonial period was Indian affairs, and yet nobody wrote about any of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, I myself, I feel like we skipped over, you know, people, you know, people weren't interested, historians weren't interested, and they just didn't even bother. You know, just didn't think it was significant in the present, so they ignored the past. I think that's part of it, too. It's sort of how people see the, the position and the role of Native Americans in the present. And we study the groups that seem important, and you know, in the present. They're, that's the past we're interested in. That, that's, you know, that's the historians call that teleology. We, you know, that we, it's a, it's a fallacy, it's a mistake, you know, to think that things were always as they are now. But that's a, a mistake that even historians can make. And I think that's part of it. Do you it. think it's a mistake, or do you think it's done on purpose? That, I think it's both. I think it's both. Yeah. I think, I think um, it is, no, I mean, it's a mistake in that it's, it's a travesty. That's what I mean. I mean, it's a false history. That's what I mean by mistake. I think it is, uh, it's intentional and unintentional, but it is, it is still, you know, it is still ideological, right? It's still, it has a lot of consequences. It, it very well could have a lot of consequences, and I think that's what uh, 
they're afraid of, you know, the, the government. And, sure. And ignoring yeah. the stuff has consequences, too. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's true, too. Yeah, I mean, what, what, you know, it's funny. I, I met Tal Oak at a talk recently, and um, he was talking about truth and reconciliation and how he's been asked to participate in truth and reconciliation. And, but he's really interested in his reparations. And, uh, you know, it'll be interesting yeah. to me when, when, you know, the dialogue about reparations um, regarding African-American slavery... You know, what, what, when we start talking about reparations for Native Americans, which I think is, you know, a, a, pretty, profound, a pretty profound question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, real, it's, it's fairly, I don't know, easy, I guess, to talk about truth and reconciliation. But then when you talk about what should be done, how, how should we, you know, recognize what's happened in the past, mm-hmm. what can we do to to fix it or, or, you know, acknowledge it somehow. I think that's, that's the challenge. Well, and how the past affects the present, too. So yeah. I think that this stuff doesn't just happen in the past and stay in the past. That it does have a, has a long-term impact. But I think it's, you know, I think really um, a lot of the, what we see as the wealth and the prosperity of early America and through the, you know, through the 19th century... Had had uh, you know expropriation of Indian land and labor at its base, and African labor. You know that's a, that's a that's a very different way to look at that story. Um, and then another you know related to your earlier point about forgetting memory. I think the other reason we don't people we we didn't know that much about Indian slavery. People stopped talking about it after the Civil War and in the 20th century was that in the eyes of many people, you know, many Native Americans in New England kind of became subsumed into a, ge- a more general category of people of color, or they were thought to be just part of the African-American community, yeah. just as Indian slaves in some ways became subsumed into a larger population of right. yeah. African slaves, as African slaves started to outnumber Indian slaves by the middle of the 18th century. Yeah. No, um, you know, um, Americans, are, you know, when it comes to race, Indians sometimes, you know, Indians have, they categorize, you know, Indians are, are a group that is difficult to categorize. Right. Now, um, we've only got probably less than a minute left, so mm-hmm. if you want to say some last things, last comments. Um. Well, I think, uh, I, you know, one of the things I try to argue in my book is about, is you mentioned this in the intro, is that um, although... Massachusetts was the first colony to define slavery, and the New England colonies engaged in the enslavement of Indians. Um, there's there are always there are always kind of mixed feelings about Indians. That there are always people who have you know the Indians are most Indians remain free people. They are they remain a significant and even powerful influence in the lives of your Americans in New England and. Um, there, you know, and there, I, I actually don't believe that in the even in the early 17th century that that the English saw the Indians as inferior, as as subhuman, or or any different from themselves. I mean, to me, they, they, what makes it more interesting in some ways is they were really enslaving people that they thought of as absolutely like themselves. So one of the things I argue is that these these complicated attitudes towards Indians meant that New Englanders never really followed through in fully defining slavery, and that, that the lack of definition of the system also shaped the way that African slaves were treated in New England, where they actually had more more power and privileges than, than some other colonies. They had the right to testify in court, for example. And that, that New England never, the New England colonies never determined whether slavery was inheritable or not. And even though most people try to assert ownership of children of, of their slaves and servants, that that gave some legal um, arguments to second and third generation Indians and Africans who tried to fight for their freedom in the 18th century, and some of them succeeded in doing so in the courts, and that the early abolitionist movement in New England actually thought about these cases and, and often used cases involving Indians to argue against slavery and to kind of push push this whole question of whether it could be inherited over the generation. Okay, then. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, It's been my pleasure, Donna. Your questions were great. Okay, well, maybe we can have uh, some follow-ups at some point. 
I thank uh, the general audience for joining us, and I'm, I'm your host, Donna Loring. Uh, I want to thank the guest, uh, my guest, uh, Professor Margaret Ellen Newell, and also uh, I want to thank our engineer, Amy Brown. Uh, the music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD, Dreamwalk. Tune in again next month for another Webinecki Windows.